Uh, welcome to week one of our series through Jonah, the prodigal prophet. Uh, this story um, is familiar for many of us. And uh, the story of the prodigal son is found in Luke 15, and it's a foundational story for us as a church. And in that story, Jesus tells, uh, we find two sons, one distant from his father because of his rebellious actions, and the other distant from his father because of his religious actions. One distant because of his bad deeds, and the other distant from the father because of his good deeds. And Jesus invites both the rebellious and the religious to the party. In so doing, he calls out the rebellious living and he calls out religious living. And in the book of Jonah, we see a parallel. In Jonah 1 and 2, we find this rebellious prophet who runs away from God. And then in Jonah 3 and 4, we see a religious prophet consumed with the mindset of we're right, you're wrong, we're in, you're out. And even throughout the book of Jonah, we see the hypocrisy of the religious prophet being exposed. Jonah takes turns being both rebellious and religious throughout the entire book, at times both at the same time. What the book of Jonah is about, we think it's about his fish, right? Like, just take a glance at the, the books that you'll find online when you Google search the book of Jonah. You're going to find this, right? Every single one of those books has got a giant fish or a whale on it. I just want to let you guys know that the fish appears in the story in two sentences, in four chapters. The book of Jonah is not about a fish. The book of Jonah may be a good children's story, but to get what's going on in it, you have to be an adult. Uh, it's a brilliant book full of wit, irony, humor, and Jonah is a horribly flawed person, and this becomes clear throughout the story. Now, early in the interpretive tradition, in trying to understand the book of Jonah, he was still seen as a prophet of God, and so he was, he was righteous, and so he was seen in a positive light, and the interpretations that came out of the book of Jonah mostly displayed him as a, as in a positive manner. That has changed in the last 500 years. Um, we begin to see Jonah in a different light. In fact, in his entire commentary on the book of Jonah, Martin Luther, 500 years ago, this was the best he could say. He said that Jonah is God's dear child, and he chats so uninhibitedly with God. That's the, that's the only point of reference that's positive in all of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Jonah. Sometimes the Bible gives us characters that we should emulate. Sometimes... It gives us these characters that we should strive to not be like. There's this stock scene that's in almost every action movie you and I have ever seen. It's where the good guy's chasing the bad guy, and it's like through a dark alley or something, and they're running, and there's fog, and then the good guy stops, and the camera kind of zooms in, and the good guy looks down, and there's a red dot on his chest, and then there's all these other red dots that go to his chest, and he kind of does this, right? Have you guys seen that, seen that in pretty much every movie you've ever seen? That's the book of Jonah, because as you're reading the story, you're like, Jonah disobeyed, there's a great storm, there's a big fish, he did what? And then you realize, oh, oh, this is about me. The whole story is aimed at punching us in the gut, pointing out and exposing our own unrighteous tendencies, which is pride, hard-heartedness, judgmentalism, tribalism, small-mindedness and an inability to grow and change and let God's grace explode the boundaries of what we think is possible in the world. That is what the book of Jonah is about. It's not about a fish. 
So for the next four weeks, we're going to walk through this short book verse by verse. Uh, it says this, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Okay, we'll stop right there. You're supposed to laugh right here. Okay, this was funny in the ancient Near East. Jonah's name means dove, dove. Son of Amittai means son of faithfulness. So doves are images of innocence and purity, and he's the son of faithfulness. Jonah is the most faithless character in the story. Verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So the author doesn't really give us any kind of background information about Jonah or Nineveh. We're just supposed to know about Jonah. We're just supposed to know about Nineveh. Uh, but here's the backstory. And Jonah's name is only mentioned one other time in the scripture beyond the book of Jonah. And it's in 2 Kings 14. You can write it down. You can look at it later on in your own time. But here's the backstory. There's this king of Israel, and his name's Jeroboam II. Okay, Jeroboam II. He's a bad dude. Does a lot of bad things. And Jonah prophesies favorably to him that, the, that the Israel's territory would increase. Jonah's a national hero. His past prophecies led to military victory for Israel. Jonah's known for prophesying that Israel would increase its national territory. This is what he's known for. And now he's being asked to go to preach a message to Israel's most hated enemies. Nothing about this mission made any sense. If any Israel would have came up with this idea, he would have been at least shunned, at worst executed. How could God ask anyone to betray their country's interests and go to bless the evil Assyrians in Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and they are the nation that wipes out the ten tribes of Israel, wipes them off the map, they cease to exist as a people group. They were the most brutal, oppressive, and violent of all the ancient empires. They were known for this, that when they conquered a city, they would skin all of their leaders and then parade them through the city on stakes, then hang their corpses in front of all, for all to see. This is the people group that Jonah is called to go preach to. They're the bad guys. God's calling this national hero to bless them? No, 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 no. God should bless Israel, but Jonah would be damned, literally, before he would see God's blessing shine on his enemies. So God sends Jonah, the dove, the, the nation's prophet, the son of faithfulness, to Nineveh, where all his worst enemies reside. Verse 3, I promise we'll go faster. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. This is a map of the ancient Near East. Uh, you see uh, where Joppa is. That's down. Nineveh is east. Tarshish, west. God calls him to go to Nineveh, east. He goes west. And not just west. Tarshish is the equivalent to what we would call Timbuktu. Okay? It's the last known port before the great vast ocean. It's the edge of the world. Jonah doesn't just flee. He flees as far as you could possibly go in the opposite direction. Direct, directed to travel over land, he goes to sea. Sent to the big city, he buys a one-way ticket to the edge of the world. Now, why does Jonah run? Why does he run away? Well, you would think that it's because of fear. Because 
going to Nineveh as an Israelite in 8th century BC is like uh, parachuting into Berlin during World War II with a big sign that said, down with the Third Reich. <laughs> you don't do that, right? This, this is dangerous. This could kill you. So he flees because of fear, right? No, actually, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible has, gives no mention uh, that fear is the reason why he fled. We actually don't find out until chapter 4, and we'll focus more on that in a few weeks. But in chapter 3, he ends up he ends up in Nineveh. He preaches to them. This amazing revival happens. Uh, the Ninevites turn their hearts to God. They start to repent. The text says even the cows repented. Okay? This is a, this is a massive, massive move of God. Uh, <laughs> and so in chapter 4, we find Jonah reflecting on the event, reflecting on what just happened. And it says this, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Dove, son of faithfulness. He tells us in chapter four exactly why he ran. He wasn't afraid they'd kill him. He ran because he knew God would find a way to show grace and mercy to his enemies. Jonah is the prophet who increases the national territory, not the one who leads a revival in enemy territory. This is going to mess with his reputation. This is going to mess up with his life plan, his prophetic career. He didn't run for fear. He ran because he thought his plan was better than God's plan. Do you sense those laser pointers yet? My son Dex is go, go, go all the time. If he sees something that looks fun or exciting, he goes for it even in parking lots. And so we squeeze his hand and make him stay next to us in parking lots. Why? Because jumping off that bench may look fun, but staying next to mom and dad is where the life is. If he lets go of our hand and starts running in the parking lot, he thinks he's running towards life, but in fact, he's running away from it. See, Jesus comes into our lives and he's like, follow me. And that competes with all the things that we want and expect our lives to be. We think we know where the life is. I know where the life is, Jesus. It's with her. It's with him. I know where the life is, Jesus. It's with more money in my bank account. That's where the life is. And you keep not answering my prayers about that. Jesus says, follow me. I'll show you where the life is. And for Jonah, it was smack dab in the middle of a people group he hated. See, Jonah's core vision of his life is being challenged, and he runs away. This will be on the screens. Jonah thinks he is running for his life, but he's actually running from his life. The revival that takes place in chapter 3 is just absolutely incredible, maybe so powerful that the world has not seen one like that since. But Jonah misses it because it doesn't fit into his worldview. It doesn't fit into his perspective, his life plans, his tribe's perspective or worldview. So he goes to Joppa, and he finds a ship ready to take him to the edge of the world. Now, some rabbis uh, suggest that the waiting ship in Joppa constitutes a sign of divine approval that God is okay with Jonah fleeing. See, I, wasn't, I guess I wasn't supposed to go to Nineveh. Here's a ship that's going to take me all the way to the edge of the world. How convenient. 
See, in our disobedience, in our sin, there will always be a boat or a port to take you where you want to go. Always. Doesn't mean it's divine approval. Verse 4 says this, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. In Hebrew, the ship actually has a brain here, and it says that the ship is pondering uh, whether it's going to break up or not. Okay? In Hebrews, you're, you're supposed to chuckle there. Then it says, verse 5, All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Uh, the sailors are alert enough to know that this is not an ordinary storm. They understood clouds. They understood the basics about weather. This is something divine. There's something special about this storm that it's from supernatural origin. And, and they, they, they begin to pray to all kinds of gods. They were, they were polytheists. They believed in lots of different gods. And so they're, they're praying to every god they can think of, the god of the wind, the god of the rain, the god of the sea, the god of the shore. God of, he's, they're praying to every kind of god. who They don't know who they messed around with. They don't know who is mad at them, but there is a god that's mad. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us that we will not perish. Not too long ago, I was driving. And I was just down Herndon. I was coming from the 99 and I was heading uh, east. And... Uh, I, w I was a little bit on the tired side, but I, w I was awake. And uh, I, I get to about the 41, and I go, I have no recollection of driving the last three miles. Anybody else experienced that before? Z I'm awake, I'm alert, I'm obeying all the rules. I I'm not sleeping, but I have, I have zero memory of what just took place. Or sometimes this happens in our daily routines, right? You go, oh, I'm going to start the load of laundry. And so you go, you put all the clothes in, you close the thing, and then, and then you, you, know, you start, and then you walk away, and you go, did I start the dryer? Did, I, I literally just did this. I have no idea whether or not I actually pushed the start button or not. This is what I think is what's going on in Jonah 1. Some of us live in a perpetual state of disengagement, going through the motions, asleep. It's not just where did the last three minutes go, it's where did the last three months go? Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you once had a certain alertness to the Spirit of God moving in your life, but at some point it fizzled, and so now you're just cruising. Your eyes are open, but you're not awake. This is true for Jonah, and it's true for us. And actually, sleep becomes a great theme throughout chapter 1 of Jonah. And notice that in Jonah's disobedience, he went down. This will be on the screens. First, he went down to Joppa. Then he went down to the boat. Then he went down below deck. Then he lay down to sleep. And then in chapter 2, he goes even further down. We'll get there next week. What does this mean? You know, I think it's intentional by the author that in our disobedience, every step we take away from God is down. So Jonah's sleeping below deck. The captain finds the sleeping prophet and he says, Arise, go, pray to your God. In Hebrew, those two words, those first two words that the captain says to Jonah are the exact same words God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, 
and, and, and preach to them. And Jonah's half asleep, he's groggy, and he hears this, you know, scratchy, bold voice say, arise, go. And he's like, God? It's the captain saying, go pray to your God. Not even in the most hidden part of the boat can Jonah escape God's instructions. If not God's, then the captain's. What's going on here? See, God sent his prophet to point the pagans to himself, yet now it is the pagans who are pointing the prophet towards God. The irony continues. Verse 7, Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Casting lots, nobody knows exactly what it was. But the, everyone, we understand the point of it. Uh, it's, it's equivalent to drawing straws. And as they draw the straws, they cast lots, the lot falls to Jonah. So they realize uh, it's a way to discern the will of the divine. And though we don't know exactly what casting lots looked like in, the, in biblical times, we know the point of it, and it was trying to discern the supernatural will of the divine. So the lot falls on Jonah. Verse 8, so they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The sea, oh, that's convenient. Uh, and, and your translation, your, your Bible might say something different. It says, I f I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord. So Jonah finally speaks, and the first thing he says is, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And us as the readers are like, no, you don't. <laughs> who, who says they fear God? Jonah. Who actually fears God? The sailors. This is the height of religious hypocrisy. You don't fear Yahweh. You can see it in his words. His words and his religious confession of faith are in deep contradiction to the choices that he's making. And so the storyteller's feeding us this hypocritical prophet, this hypocritical man of God. And we're like, whoa, this is great. He says he fears God. He doesn't fear God. Then they're convicting the prophet instead of the prophet convicting them. This is crazy. Oh, that's me. <laughs> Who of us has not been a religious hypocrite? The moment we begin to feel superior to Jonah we fall into the mirror we're presented with in the Bible that it actually reveals us. It's a mirror. Oh, really? You've never had a contradiction between what you say you believe and how you actually live? You might just be sleepwalking. And the sailors can see the contradiction. Verse 10, this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? Then the storyteller it whispers in our ear. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. See, they're pointing out his hypocrisy. Often this happens. It is those who are outside the people of God who can see and point out the religious hypocrisy of the people of God. It's true. We in the church, we're so blinded at times. And then we see something on the news criticizing Christians and we're like, they don't know what they're talking about. Actually, we should probably listen. Here we find people outside of the people of God, God's covenant people, pagans, pointing out the religious hypocrisy of God's own prophet. And it's true. And they're right. Verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do 
to you to make the sea calm down for us. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Why does Jonah say this? Now, why does he say, pick me up, throw me into the sea? Then it'll stop. And this week on social, our, our prodigal social media, we're going to be looking at this question more in depth. And if you don't follow us yet, we'll be posting some extras, extra biblical study stuff, kind of throughout each week during this series as we dive deeper into the book of Jonah. But why does he say, throw me overboard? Why doesn't he just say, you know what? I've disobeyed God. He called me to go to Nineveh. I bought a ticket to Tarshish. And so if we just turn around, not only will the water be calm, I bet we'll get the best sailing wind we've ever had as we head back to the shore. He doesn't do that. No. Instead, he says, throw me overboard. I'd rather die than do the will of God. He's doubling down. He's trying to get even further away from God. God found me at the, at the bottom of the ship. I, I think I can get away if I go to the bottom of the sea. What begins as a, as a step west instead of east soon accelerates to self-destruction. He's saying, I'd rather die than do God's will. I'd rather die than give those sinners a chance to repent. His heart had become calloused. And he's done. Have you ever seen, like, like on National Geographic, like a documentary of fire walkers, people who can walk on hot coals? Uh, it's a crazy deal. Here's a, here's a video behind me of people just doing insane things with these coals and jumping on them, and it doesn't burn their feet. Why? Why? Is it a mind ever matter thing? Maybe, but part of it is this. See, they don't wear shoes most often, and they're... they're their feet become calloused with dead skin, layers of dead skin, so that they can't even feel. It is said that you could stick a needle all the way through someone's foot if their foot is calloused enough and they wouldn't feel the pain. I think that there are some in this room that have a calloused heart. See, we've been to church for many years. We've been a part of worship services so many times. We've heard countless Bible studies. You've done it for so long that now you can't feel it. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God could cut you so deep and you wouldn't flinch. Is your heart calloused with layers to prevent you from feeling, from experiencing and encountering God's heart for you, your life in this world? Verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. Notice that the narrator no longer calls them sailors. Or mariners, some of the translations say. Now they're men. They're all in the same boat. They could, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And the, the role reversal is now complete. The pagan sailors are acting like the righteous prophet, and the righteous prophet is acting like the pagan sailors. Verse 15, Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. 
At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. All of this is ironic. Jonah was fleeing God because he did not want to go and show God's truth to the wicked pagans, but that is exactly what he ends up doing. Daniel Timmer writes this, Jonah's anti-missionary activity has ironically resulted in the conversion of non-Israelites. Let's take a look at these sailors. These sailors, these men, are now converted. And this is no foxhole conversion, right? You're familiar with what a foxhole conversion is? Okay, this, this is a foxhole conversion, right? Picture yourself, you're in battle. <laughs> Lord, if you get me out of here, I promise I'll serve you with everything inside me. And then you just go on living your life. Thanks. And the Oscar goes too. Foxhole conversion is this. People who are under duress often make vows to God and offer their obedience if they get delivered from impending doom. But after the danger passes, the religious observances, the prayers, they fade away. It's life as usual. These men in Jonah were different. They made their vows after doom left them. After they were rescued. After the danger passed, that indicates that they were not seeking God for what he could do for them, but simply for the greatness of who he is in himself. This is the beginning of true faith. Maybe you too have had a foxhole conversion. God, get me out of this financial struggle. And if you do, I promise I'll get things right with you. God, please just provide, with me, provide me a spouse. And then I'll follow you with everything. God, please just bless us with a child. Well, maybe God did. Live your vow. And maybe God hasn't answered your prayers. Maybe God hasn't answered those prayers. Could you still live your vow whether he answers or not? Because if not, we're kind of like Jonah here. Running away from God because it seems his hope for your life is different than your hope for your life. Verse 17 enters the most famous character in the story. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We'll talk more about the fish next week. I want to invite Preston and the band to come up, and I'll close with this story. I read this week of a four-and-a-half-year-old boy by the name of Justin Carl. And he was, he was misbehaving, he, uh, he was talking back, and uh, Dad says, go to your room. And on his way to his room, he looks at Mom and says, I'm going to run away. I'm going to run away. And Mom immediately thinks back to when she was a little girl having those thoughts. And when she was a little girl, she remembered it wasn't because she really wanted to run away. It was because she was saying, notice me. I'm important. So she, she responds, okay, Justin, you can run away from home. And then she starts picking out some clothes 
He's like, Mom, what are you doing? She's like, I'll need a coat. I will need my nightgown. I'll need some toothpaste, toothbrush. And he, she goes, Justin, do you still want to run away? And he says, well, yeah, but what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm, I'm not going to let you be alone. If you're going to run away from home, then Mama's going with you. Because I would never want you to be alone. I love you too much. Even when we run away, God is always going to be with us because he loves us, because he knows that's where the life is. And just like the story in Luke 15, it was never a story about the prodigal son. It was never a story about the fish. It was never a story about Jonah. It was always a story about the loving father. The story of Jonah is ultimately not about a fish, but a God who longs to be gracious to the wicked, to the bad guys, to us, to me, to you, that his love is scandalous. It's a God who pursues us. That's what the book of Jonah is about. And so maybe some of you are in this place and, and you, you sense that there has been some callousness to your own heart, to where you can't feel. God, where are you? Some of you have been running away from God for a long time and you realize that it's always down. It wasn't down to Joppa. It wasn't down into a boat, but it was down. And God's saying, I'm pursuing you. I'm not letting you go alone. God, I pray that we grasp this, that we grasp your love and your pursuit of us in the midst of our waywardness, that you don't wait till we decide to come back to you to be kind to us, to show grace to us, that even when Jonah says, I'd rather die than do what God wants, and he throws himself into the deepest sea, that God, you still provided a way. Supernaturally, you intervened. 